Welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast, your home for open and thought-provoking conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators on their technologies for building greener and smarter cities. Hey everyone, I'm Nadina Khala, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Internet of Nature podcast. I'm so glad you're here. This week, I'm thrilled to have Allison Young on the show. This past April, I heard about something called the City Nature Challenge, an annual four-day global bio-blitz that got over 50,000 people to find and document urban wildlife using the iNaturalist app. As I found out, Allison Young is the driving force behind this initiative, and I knew I had to talk to her. When she's not co-leading the City Nature Challenge, Allison is the co-director of the Center for Biodiversity and Community Science at the California Academy of Sciences. Allison is originally trained as a marine biologist as well, and she and her co-director run Snapshot Cal Coast, a yearly campaign to mobilize the public to document species along the California coastline. When she's not in the tide pools for work, she can often be found in the tide pools for fun, photographing nudibranches, which I learned is a sea slug, which she then overshares on social media. Allison has the kind of infectious energy that just leaves you smiling from ear to ear for the rest of the day, and a pleasure to talk to. Enjoy. Thank you, Allison, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So maybe to kick us off, would you mind introducing yourself and what you do? Yeah, so I'm Allison Young, and I am the co-director of the Center for Biodiversity and Community Science at the California Academy of Sciences, and I'm also a marine biologist. Brilliant. How did you get into marine biology? Oh, you know, when I was in college, I really fell in love with ecology. I went into college as an English major, you know, thinking like, you know, I like books. I could maybe be like a high school English teacher. Um, right. And, you know, and I took I took an intro biology class that was like, you know, cellular and molecular. And I'm like, uh, it's a lot of lab work, like kind of what I thought about biology. And then the right. second semester, though, the, the like next intro class was like ecology and being outside. And like I felt I was like, wait a second, like this is biology, too. And I can do this as a job. Um, oh, that's amazing. So, yeah. So I, I went through college and loved it and then like took some time off and worked another job where I was trying to decide, like, do I want to go do like forest ecology or marine ecology? Um, and I was working along the California coast and really fell in love with the tide pools. Uh, and so right. I decided to go back to school and, and get a degree in marine biology. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And then, and how did you get involved with iNaturalist and the City Nature Challenge? Yeah, so uh, iNaturalist is a department here at the Academy. So they're my colleagues. So mm. I don't run iNaturalist. Um, but they're just another department here. And they're the ones that like, you know, keep the app going and make the website easy to use and beautiful and things like that as well. Um, but when I started working here at the Academy, um, you know, the, a lot of people don't know what the science of a natural history museum is. You know, people come to our museum and they uh, love to visit the exhibits and, you know, we have an aquarium and we have a rainforest. And, um, but a lot of people don't know that we have a really active research division here um, as well. Right. And, you know, and, and the science of natural history and what scientists at natural history museums do is they tend to travel the world and like document where species occur around the world and they uh, describe new species. Uh, and, you know, the idea is to really get an understanding of where around the world like do species occur. 
and they collect specimens, you know, so that's the Natural History Museums have huge specimen collections. We have like 46 million specimens here at the Academy. Um, and so when we were starting our community science program, we really wanted to like one kind of introduce people to like, what is the science that happens in a Natural History Museum? And then let people kind of have that fun of like, going out and observing and discovering, you know, like instead of kind of the scientific process of like, you know, put down a quadrat and count a bunch of stuff or like walk a transect and do this, like to really give them that feeling of like, this is what you do as a scientist at a natural history museum is you do, you go out and explore and you really observe and like, you know, you look carefully. Um, but what we didn't want was people to like send us specimens. Like, you know, we wanted people to be able to somehow document species without like actually having to collect a, a physical specimen as the evidence right. of that species, right? Um, and so luckily when we were starting our community science program here, iNaturalist at the time was not part of the academy. It actually was developed as a um, final project for a master's program at UC Berkeley. Right. Uh, and so they, um, it had, you know, the, one of the co-directors had kind of shepherded it from UC Berkeley into kind of its own thing. Um, and another co-director uh, had come on, but they still didn't have like an institutional home. They were like, you know, working out of their living rooms and stuff like that. Right. Um, and so when we were kind of looking for what it, what we could have people do to document species around them, we discovered iNaturalist. We're like, well, this seems like something that would work really well because, you know, it's all about, you know, documenting where species occur around the world, but yeah. it's not about collecting a specimen. It's like, let's take a photograph or, right. um, you know, now you can record sounds on it too. It's like the evidence of what you found. Um, and so we started using it in our community science program and we're like, oh yeah, this kind of like solves that problem. Like, you know, it gives us, gives us that tool that we need. Um, and so at the time, they, the two co-directors, Kenichi Ueda and Scott Laurie, like reached out to us and they said, hey, like we see you're using iNaturalist and we're based here in the Bay Area as well. Like does the Cal Academy maybe want to become like the home of iNaturalist. Um, so we ended up, me and my co-director, Rebecca wow. Johnson, we connected them kind of like to our leadership at the Academy and eventually the Academy decided to bring them on. So they're their own department here. We're both departments in our research division. Um, Right. So they like maintain the platform and we really see our role as like giving people, you know, reasons and to go out and use it. Right. To like sure. give events and campaigns and things like that. Right. Wow. And how does how does iNaturalist compare to some of the other plant ID, flora and fauna ID apps that are out there? Well, you know, so when we first started our program, we did want to make sure that we like tested some other platforms as well. Um, right. And we had started we. Uh, started our community science program with a pilot up on um, Mount Tamalpais, which is a, a mountain just across the Golden Gate Bridge from uh, San Francisco. And the folks that managed the land there were really interested in like documenting the plants, all the plants that they had in the watershed that they manage. Um, and so we tried another uh, like a plant tool, a plant, you know, platform that was really just designed for plants, uh, which was great because it was like very specific, but like very much more geared towards like professional botanists and like professional sure. researchers. And it just, um, you know, we found that iNaturalist just had like that really easy user interface that people could understand how to use it, you know, and actually, right. I mean, since we first started using it, it's gotten even easier and easier as they like have now have machine learning. So it actually like suggests IDs to you, which they didn't have before. You used to have to like right. upload it and wait for someone to give you an ID and things like that as well. So we really just found that out of all the tools that we used, it had that really great balance of being uh, very user-friendly, but also like the data is available, right? It's not like it's hidden behind. You don't have to email someone and say, please, can I have this data? You know, right. it's all available. You can download it, you can use it. And not just to, to us, but to anybody, which is really important to us that like mm. people who actually use it can also explore the data and, and then like download it if they want. Yeah, yeah. And how, and how are, what are you using that data for? 
uh, you know, so there's lots of different ways that we try to mobilize the data. iNaturalist being a global platform, you know, meet, there's over 60 million observations now that have been submitted around the entire world. And so it's used in lots of different ways, wow. kind of, um, you know, we kind of think of it as like kind of three main use cases. Like one is just the fact that it's a huge data set, right? So that's like big data. And iNaturalist, um, when the observations, when the community agrees on what species it is, and as long as it, mm. you know, seems to have an accurate location and their accurate date, like this species was here, you know, found on this date, mm. on, uh, right here, um, they send it to other global databases like uh, GBIF, which is the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, which is right. like a giant, giant database of species occurrence records. And so that's actually cool because it's sending all this data from my naturalist about right. these species are occurring here. And it also has older species occurrence records like from museum specimens like here at the academy you know we have mm. specimens dating back to like you know the 1800s early 1900s and so those are in gbif also and so oh, wow scientists and people who are really interested in understanding especially how species distributions are changing through time like i think yeah. this species was found you know is is currently being found in different places than where it was found in the past maybe due to climate change it's mm. moving northward or it's going higher up mountains or things like that mm. So a lot of people download the data set, download data sets from GBIF because it gives you that kind of that historical perspective from all these you know, museum specimens and other species occurrence records and this current perspective as well. Right. Um, and so you could answer really big questions, right, about yeah. where species occur and where they uh, occur around the world. Um, a lot of people more locally and more immediately, um, and what we try to do a lot in our department is mobilize the data for like management purposes. Um, mm. So when we get people together, we often hold like bio blitzes, right? Where we get people to go all to one place, like one park at one time. And we're trying to document all the species we can in like three right. hours there. Um, and we always do that in partnership, like with the management organization, like with the parks department or, you know, whoever owns or manages that land mm -hmm. so that they can use those data to make better decisions, right? So they can get us a, a kind of a, a start of a species list. They can get a sense of where those right. species are found on their landscape. Um, right. and, and make, make better decisions, you know, about like, oh, we have this non-native species that we should keep an eye on, or we have, oh, well, there's this endangered species that we didn't know was here. Like, let's make sure we like, we watch that population, things like that. Mm. Um, and so the data are definitely used like all over, not just by us, but like, you know, people all over the world do this, like to use it to make decisions like on the ground locally, kind of a local snapshot of the data, you know, and then there's just like, when you have 60 million observations and 100,000 people out there, you know, or 300,000 people out there looking and making observations, you're bound to find things that you were not expecting, right? And so there's been a lot of really great stories of, you know, species showing up in places that they weren't expected, like we didn't know the species was here, or like, I mean, wow. brand new species have been discovered on a naturalist too, or species that were thought to be totally extinct have been rediscovered because someone takes a photograph of it and uploads it to iNaturalist. And so there's wow. also like that one individual observation, you know, could be used to, as a really important discovery as well. Yeah, so we absolutely. See that as like, you know, the, the way those data get used. There's like the big data sense, there's like this kind of local use to make decisions on the ground in a local place, and then also mm. like, one observation could be really important. Wow. And is it is iNaturalist being used internationally or are there is there more of the community in North America or what's kind of what does the, the global kind of distribution look like? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I'm not going to know it 100% since I don't actually like have those like stats myself, but um, iNaturalist is global. It is definitely used globally. There are observations on every continent. I think they did a kind of a country roundup a couple years ago. And I think, you know, 
there's at least an observation in almost every single country. Wow. Um, because it was started here in California and in the Bay Area, you know, there is a lot of like California observations and North America observations and, you know, Canada observations in Canada. There's a lot of observations in Europe now, um, but there's huge growing communities, you know, over the last few years, like the South American, the Central and South American community has really taken off. Mm. Um, uh, I think their fastest growing country in terms of observations is Russia right now, like tons of observations coming in from Russia. Wow. Um, yeah. And they, they have these network nodes, like where there's actually like instances of iNaturals for a particular country. And they have like, I think want to say 14 or 15 of those now. So it's definitely kind of wow. getting that global reach, right. you know, so it, it's everywhere. I'd say it's probably least represented um, in like African countries, um, but, you know, but there's still observations being made there for sure. Wow. And yeah. is, is all of the all of the recognition done purely based on you mentioned that machine learning was used to do a lot of the image recognition? Is that how all of these species uh, are now being recognized or is it kind of a part way between also just taking a picture, sending it to the community and, and hoping to kind of make a crowdsourced estimation of what it could be? Right. And like, that's how I naturally started, right? It was all about mm. crowdsourcing that identification. Um, right. You know, now that they have this machine learning, it's that machine learning, you know, it's built on the observations that people have already made. So they need to have mm. a certain number of observations of a species that have made it to research grade, which is when um, the community kind of, there's a two thirds majority consensus that this is what this species is by the people who mm. are adding their identifications to it. Um, and so they use those to then, you know, teach the computer how to identify that species. And so that machine learning works really well in places where there are already a lot of observations. So like, mm. just like what we talked about, like those, those places where there's lots of right. observations, that's where that machine learning works really, really well. Like places in North America, you know, in California, here in the Bay Area, it works incredibly. But if you go to some place that doesn't have very many observations, it's not going to work as well. It might give you like a family level suggestion, but it's not going to be able to get it down to species. And that's right. where that community really comes in and you know and even the the machine learning it just it's just suggestions that they give you right and you have to pick you have to kind of look at those suggestions and and decide yourself what seems potentially like the best id or maybe be like right. actually i don't think any of these are the right id right, um, and right. so that community that crowdsourcing is still really important part of it nothing you know i said that they send their data to this other uh, the global biodiversity information facility um only research grade observations go there. So those are, even when you upload it with a machine learning suggestion, you still need at least someone else in the community to come in and say, yes, that looks like it's the right species. I'm going to agree right. with it um, right. before right. it's like right. sent on to other databases. Makes sense. Yeah. And it's a yeah. system that's ever growing and ever learning and ever yes. improving really. Wow. Exactly. And maybe you could tell me your favorite story about how iNaturalist has been used either to identify completely new species or maybe just when it was used in a really surprising way. Well, so one of my personal favorite stories is that, um, you know, like I said, I'm a marine biologist and my co-director, Dr. Rebecca Johnson, she's also a marine biologist. And so mm -hmm. when we started our community science program, we really wanted to make sure that we had some sort of marine program part of it, yeah. you know, like a way to connect people to marine species. Um, and so we started a intertidal, a rocky intertidal or a tide pool monitoring program at a site just south of us, um, south of San Francisco. Um, and it was a site that needed um, monitoring. There, there wasn't like any, mm. like there wasn't a species list for the place. Um, you right. know, there's like a, a gap that we saw that we could fill in there. Um, and so we've kind of cultivated um, and grown and like, you know, luck, have been lucky enough to have this amazing group of volunteers that have like come to us through time. 
and have been really excited about you know going out to the tide pools and documenting species. Um, and because it's a focus of the academy and just because they're amazing, a lot of our volunteers really love nudibranchs. So sea slugs, um, ah. really colorful little you know slugs that are out in the tide pools that are kind of hard to find, but like right. so rewarding when you do find them. And so a lot of our volunteers get really focused on on documenting nudibranchs that we find out in the tide pools. Right. Um, and, but you can only do, only do that during low tide. And so one of our volunteers, her daughter really wanted to be a marine biologist um, and would come out to the, you know, tide pools when she could, but because we have to go during low tide, like sometimes it's in the middle of a school day. And so like, as a, as a kid, you can't come out with us. Um, and so her mom started taking her uh, to the San Francisco Bay. So the other, other side um, to the bay, and you can uh, look under docks. Uh, it doesn't have to matter what tide, you know, the tide could be high right. or low. You can still stick your head and look under a dock and see what's growing. Right. We call right. those fouling organisms that grow on the edge of a dock. And so a few years ago now, um, they were out there and, and, and looking under a dock and you know, taking photos of things that they found. And they found these nudibranchs, these like spectacular nudibranchs that had like streamers coming off of like their rhinophores, which kind of look like antenna. And they didn't know what it was. And they're just like, We've never seen this before. Like, but they, of course, they did what they're supposed to do. They took really good photos and then mm. uploaded it to iNaturalist. And this was back before iNaturalist even had the, the machine learning suggestions. So they just had to upload it and say like, hey, anyone know what this is? And what so, is this? <laughs> yeah, so the community came together and we did some sleuthing and we realized it was the species of nudibranch that like up until that point had only ever been documented in uh, Asia. So this is not wow. only like a new record for California, it's a new record for the entire North America of this nudibranch being found there. Um, and they're awesome found thing by a, what is she, eight years old? I uh, know, she, she was a high school student. So she was okay, like okay. 17, Still. 16, Yeah, well, and then the really cool thing is, is that because she was a high school student, we were able to mentor her in the process of writing up the scientific paper to say, wow. hey, this is, a, this is a new, you know, new finding, new like, you know, lo locality for this species. And she was the sole author of this scientific paper that she got to publish before she was in high school and then went off to college and is now a marine biologist. <laughs> like, That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful story. Yeah. Wow. Well, it just goes to show that, you know, something like this can, well, that's another question I wanted to ask is, you know, I feel like a lot of the times when we talk about this idea of bringing technology and nature conservation together, it's still seen as this very, you know, almost polar opposites, almost this paradoxical thing to do. But, you know, the story like this really exemplifies how beautiful it can be. Um, despite stories like that, you know, have you guys faced any critique or, or um, criticism about using this form of technology for this kind of work? Yeah, you know, we find... Um... A lot of times people are like super happy to come to a BioBlitz and be with us and, and document mm. the species that they find using, you know, using the app while we're out there. But then we hear a lot of times like, oh, but when I go hiking by myself, because what we're kind of hoping is that they come to our events or they come, they, they hear about using iNaturalist right. for these campaigns or these events that we run. And then they see the value and continue to use it, right? That they like, wow. oh, they understand like why it's important to keep documenting species and hopefully they keep using it, you know, in their everyday lives. But then a lot of times we hear from folks like, oh, but when I'm out hiking, like, I don't want to be distracted by it. Like, I don't want to have to pull out my phone and take, like, I would just want to be out in nature, right? Like, I don't want to actually have to look at anything through a screen, which is totally valid, you know, yeah. like, and I, and I get that for sure. And a lot of times, especially when we talk about, you know, most of the groups that we work with are adults or families. So like adults with their, with their children. Um, but a lot of times when people think about doing this with children, they're just like, oh, but kids already have so much screen time and we need to like divorce them from that. Um, but, you know, just, just speaking personally, like as a marine biologist, when I started this work, like I couldn't have told you what like 90% of the 
plants were around me, you know, here in San Francisco or here in the Bay area. And through this process of like, you know, now when I go hiking, I'm constantly observing. I'm like, Oh, what's that? Like, I'm going to take a picture of it. Like I get really close and I take a photo of it and I'm constantly looking for species and wanting to document it. And through just doing this over and over and over again, like I can now identify, especially like during wildflower season, like I'd say at least 80% of the wildflowers that pop around just because like I've taken so many pictures of them and done observing and then like, okay, what's this again? And someone helps me figure it out that I've eventually learned all these things. And so I think it's a really powerful way, you know, to, to kind of force yourself to slow down and to really observe and be curious. Right. Um, and through this process of observing and like getting up close and taking like a really good photograph, you do start to learn, um, which I think is really important. No, exactly. I agree. Cause I, I think technology can be this really kind of helpful tool to facilitate these first couple of interactions. And after that, you're like, well, now it's all up in my head, all the knowledge. I don't need this yeah. anymore. You know, and that's kind of really um, the goal of a lot too, which is really not that different in, you know, waiting, telling the rest of your group, you know, hold up, I've got my little botany book here and I want to take a second and see if I can figure out what this is. Right. I mean, it's right. just, it's our new botany book in a way. Right. Well, the great thing is, it's like, it's our new book for everything. You don't actually have to carry like your botany book and your bird book and like your mushroom book and your reptile book. Like it's all there together, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, Yeah. no, exactly. That was actually, I spoke um, to the founder and CEO of PlantSnap, one of Mm -hmm. these other plant identification apps. And he was saying when he got started about 10 years ago, that was, that was the main inspiration for him was, you know, wanting to discover what a certain plant species was that he saw in his friend's backyard and really loved and didn't understand that the only way to do that was to either be an expert and you know how many expert botanists or 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 mycologists or um mm-hmm. you know flower experts do we have in the world or carry around like an entire library of books with you so indeed yeah. i mean i think it's simply a tool and it's it's on us to use it responsibly right yeah and i think it's kind of one of the beautiful stories of like you know the 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 founding of iNaturalist and why it was initially built so Kenichi Ueda who's one who's one of the you know co-developers and co-directors he came out to you know go to UC Berkeley um but he moved here from Connecticut and so you know he would go out and go out hiking and see all these new species you know he was already really into nature and, and he would go out and he would just be like but like what are all these things and the same idea like he doesn't want to carry all of his books with him so he would take yeah. photographs of stuff and he's just like where is that place where I can like post these photographs and other people who know know these who like live here can maybe yeah. like we can share what we're finding and help each other ID them you know so yeah. that's why he kind of that's the the, the the kernel that started iNaturalist and so like at its core it's, it's a social network, like, you know, yeah. more, more than the, the, you know, amazing ability to collect this species occurrence data globally, and more than the ability to like, you know, that machine learning providing identifications, like it was started as a social network for people who are interested in nature or who are just starting to get interested in nature can connect with other people who are also interested in nature and learn from each other. And, and inspire them to get outdoors at the end of the day yeah. too, and, and, and find it for themselves. That's beautiful. Um, I'm curious. So, uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, identifying different, um, different species while on hikes, but I know you've also done a lot with the city nature challenge. So why yeah. was identifying species within a very urban setting? Uh, so, so important for you guys. Uh, well, you know, like, so the city nature challenge was initially something that we started, um, and we still run with the natural history museum of Los Angeles County, their community science department. Um, and, uh, the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County has always had this really amazing urban focus. Like they're really focused on documenting the species in Los Angeles County. That's really like mm. their, 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 um, 
focus there. And so when we started the City Nature Challenge, you know, this was back in 2016 when the, the first ever Citizen Science Day was announced and there was this call to like do something, you know, if you, if you run citizen science programs or, you know, do community science, like can you do something for the state to kind of spread the word about the importance of citizen and community science? Um, right. And so, you know, we had been colleagues with our, with uh, the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, their community science department for a while, and especially Leela Higgins, who's their manager, um, who, or was their manager at the time, she's a co-manager now. Uh, and so, we're, you know, we got on the phone with her and we said, hey, like, can we do something together maybe? Because they had been using iNaturalist, they had, you know, had been this, had this really urban focus. We had been doing like urban bio blitzes like in, in city parks here, you know, cause we're based in San Francisco. And so like, we want to do things in our own backyard like the people who live around here as well. But we said right. like, is there something that we can do together? And uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles already have like such a rivalry in terms of like our sports teams and things like that is like, you know, the two big cities in, in, uh, in California. And so we, we said, let's capitalize on this and have a competition about nature this time. Like we're going right. to do this nature, like which of our two cities, you know, can find the most biodiversity. And so when we started it, we really kind of started it just kind of as a fun competition between the two of us um, or between our two, our two regions. Um, but then as more and more people heard about it and wanted to, wanted to do it as well, you know, we thought it was going to be a one-off thing uh -huh. back in 2016. We'll do it once. Right. That's it. Um, but then more people were like, what is this? Like, how can my city get involved? And so that's how we've started kind of expanding it over the years and opening it up to more and more cities. And as we've done this, like, we've really wanted to make sure that, you know, it's not just about the competition. It's not just like, you know, which city wins, um, that it is about connecting people to the fact that nature is around you everywhere, um, mm -hmm. that you don't have to go even to a park, like it's, even if you have a great city park, like there's still nature around you as you're walking down the street, you know, mm -hmm. there's still nature around you in your own backyard. Um, and so we really, you know, one of the main goals of the city nature challenge is to kind of connect people to their like hyper, hyper local nature. Um, that mm -hmm. even if you're in a city, there's still biodiversity and, and still other species around you. And again, it takes slowing down and looking. And a lot of times when you're walking down a city, you know, down a city street, you're just like, oh, it's like weeds. Like I'm just seeing weeds. It's all just weeds but when you really start to look like yeah they're weeds but there's lots of maybe individual species and like you can slow down yeah. and really start to take photo you know take photos and, and really again start to learn that it's not just one species like there can be as you're walking down the city street like 20 species of plants that are growing in the cracks yeah. in the sidewalk you know yeah 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 so it's really Absolutely. been about helping people again kind of giving them a reason to slow down and look carefully and realize how much biodiversity is around you even in a city Mm, wow and yeah. what so it's been since that's 2016 was the first one so you've been running yeah. one every year since every year since yeah and and how many how many cities are taking part now so uh the 2021 uh city nature challenge happened at the end of april into mm. early may and that was 419 cities around the world wow Alex, yeah. that's insane yeah it's five years time <laughs> five years yeah believe it we, we we kind of think about how how insane it is sometimes From two to 419 you said that's crazy wow yeah. <laughs> so so who is the winner I know it's not well, about winning or losing but <laughs> yeah you know especially in the last few years because of the pandemic we decided to mm. not focus as much on the competition especially Fair in 2020 <laughs> when, like, when when we had to do the 2021 literally like six weeks after the entire world went into lockdown and yeah. so we really didn't want to encourage people to like break you know their like COVID lockdown rules yeah, so yeah yeah we've tried really hard to not focus as much on the competition side but really focus on the collaboration side like it's amazing that we all do this together you know that every all these people around the world are doing this together you know especially during a pandemic 
pandemic that people are still trying to get outside and connect to nature. Um, and so this year we made, um, this is the first year that we broke a million observations in, uh, wow. in the four, it's four days only that it happened. Wow. So we made about um, one and a quarter million observations in four days. We documented 42,000 species. We had wow. Four, 400 or not 400 40,000 something people participate as well around the world wow that's amazing. and even though even though we're not you know crowning winners I will say that Cape Town South Africa for the last few years has done a pretty amazing job <laughs> during this wow CDH that's and, cool well you did yeah. mention the rise in interest in South Africa but that's mm -hmm. that's cool to see yeah um wow well hopefully that spreads to the rest of Africa so we can get yeah. the uh, the global distribution up there yeah wow very very cool very cool so so what what would be what would be a piece of advice that you would give to a city official or an urban ecologist that was looking at at iNaturalist as as a tool to be able to either quantify their biodiversity or you know get people more in touch with the nature around them what what advice would you give them uh, yeah, so I think, you know, using iNaturalist, it's one of those things that like, again, like I said, like, I, we see our role as kind of giving people reasons to use it, right? That like, mm. if, if you're already like a super nature nerd, and you're really into, you know, really into figuring out the things around you, like you might find iNaturalist on your own, like, because that's something mm. you might be looking for. But for the vast majority of people, like they're not looking for an app like iNaturalist to use in their everyday lives. And so I think a, a really important part of it is, you know, building that community of people and giving people reasons why they should be using it. So it's not just like, I'm just going to go on iNaturalist and like download all the data that's already there and then hope that a whole bunch of people are going to keep using it, you know, to mm -hmm. get, the, uh, get the other data that I need, that it is really about like giving people reasons and kind of cultivating a community. Um, you know, that's why we, when we can, we really love having like in-person events, right. Where people can like meet other people who are super interested in, in, in using yeah. the app and, and who are interested in learning more about nature. Um, and so I really think that that's a really key part of it is like, you know, give people a chance to meet other people who are interested in nature, give people a chance to do this together, you know, to come to actually have someone to be like, hey, I don't understand this part of the app. Can you show me what to do here? You know, to like mm. hold these events to bring people together, um, right. I think is a really is a really good part of it. And what we've really found here in the Bay Area is after like running these sorts of events for like 10 years now is that we do have this like sustaining community of folks that you know, they'll go out and document whatever they find, wherever they are. They just always right. use it. Right. And that's right. kind of what you want is to eventually have that like constant stream of data, um, you yeah. know, coming in. Um, but I think in the beginning, it really does take some work. It's not just like, you know, a lot of people think of like citizen science or community science is like, it's free, right? Like, you know, it's just, it's out there. It's volunteers. So I don't have to like, you know, invest any time or money into it. And that's sure. just not true. You know, like, yeah. I think it's it's you're gonna your the dividends pay off much more if you do invest some time and some resources like even in terms of like people time you know into absolutely yeah 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 your community. yeah and building that community and getting the word out absolutely yeah. yeah and I think a large part too is is understanding you know be, besides that you know this idea of being able to quantify the biodiversity and 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 being able to kind of have it play a role in nature education also kind of understand what else that data can offer us as you were saying at the beginning of our, of our conversation i think the, the applications of data sets like this is is endless i don't think we've yeah. really fully grasped just what this is going to mean and even you know a couple of years from now that kind of global data set and then actually being able to combine that with other data sets that are out there as well I mean, that's huge. I mean, we're looking at, you know, the, the world's most comprehensive biodiversity database that we've ever had.
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and, and like it does, it takes some work too, right? It's not like you can just go in and, and I mean, you can just go in and download the data, especially if you're interested in a species list. But iNaturalist has always mm -hmm. said like, you know, we're not for tracking abundance. It's not like they have, there's not like another uh, feature in the app that like tells you like how many of these things did you see? Because again, it's about like, mm -hmm. this is like this documenting, this natural history process yeah. of just like going out and documenting. And so it's always been very clear that like the data set is really about like this species occurred here on this day, right? You can say this species occurs in this place, but it's not yeah. like how many of that species occur in that place. But the amazing thing is though, is that like there's so much data now that you actually can start getting to that. It takes some work, you know, mm -hmm. and like, like any data set, like it takes, you know, don't just take it at face value. Like um, people who want to use the data, you know, a lot of times we hear like, oh, but it's, 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 you know, people are the people making observations, the people identifying it, like, you don't even have to be an expert. So how can I even trust that, you know? Mm. Um, and so I think, like, one, like, iNaturalist has done a really great job, actually, of showing that, like, most of the, the IDs that come through iNaturalist are um, valid IDs. Mm. And two, though, like, if you're going to use that, like, we become part of that community. The process of going on iNaturalist and like you can help improve IDs. Like if you see something that's been, you know, made to research grade at the wrong, at the wrong ID, that's totally fine. Like go put the right ID in. It, it dumps yeah. it back into that pool of saying like other people need to look at this now because this is no longer, we don't, we no longer have an agreement on what this yeah. species is. And so, you know, I think it's one, it's like very valuable to like cultivate your community Two, super valuable to actually become part of the community. If you want to use that data set, like at least on the identification side of it, if you're someone who knows how to ID things, like that's kind of always the bottleneck with iNaturalist is that there's, you know, all these people who go out and observe, but not nearly as many people who take the time to ID things, sure. um, you know, become part of that IDing community. And like that actually only improves your data set. And then, you know, we uh, have we were we have a partnership with the state of California to kind of do what you were just talking about about taking this biodiversity data set, and we this is specifically along the coast of California because we work um, with the Ocean Protection Council, which is an mm -hmm. agency um, in our state government here, um, and they're really interested in understanding like how can we take this really like opportunistic data set where people are out there like you know making these observations, how can we use it to actually make informed decisions along our coast, you know, like what's right. happening in our marine protected areas, what's happening outside of our marine protected areas, what's happening with species moving up and down the coast. Right. Um, and so they actually, through our partnership, uh, were able to, we were able to hire a data scientist who like, you know, it, it, it takes the right sort of person who knows how to comb through those data and like, you know, remove those biases and like, you know, look for those mm -hmm. patterns and model those data. But we were able to like, you know, basically build them a little like a, a, a tool that they could actually go and like get patterns along the California coast for species and wow. things like that, you know, and we're now in the process of building them an, an early warning and forecasting system, because like having people out there with eyes on the ground, that's like the fastest way you can find if something like new yeah. is showing up, right? Or something unusual is happening instead of waiting for the professional scientists who might go to one particular site like only once a year, yeah, you know, exactly. while people are out there every single day making observations. And so we're actually using that information and using this amazing community of people on the California yeah. coast to build right. them this like early warning and forecasting system. Wow, yeah, and being able to look at the whole area versus indeed when you, you know, you bring in the professionals, no way that they could do that for the entire coast, they're only going to be able to sample certain areas. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. How, um, so you, you mentioned that um, you had recently, iNaturalist had, uh, has a new feature where you can record sounds as well. Mm -hmm. What, what are some other features that we can be looking forward to? 
I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what they have in the pipeline. Again, mm. they, they hold those things a little, you know, people are always um, requesting features, but it's always hard I to bet. know like which ones they're going to be, be coming out with next, you know, but I'd say, you know, this ability to record sounds is pretty amazing that it gives people yeah. the chance to record birds and like frogs and bats and stuff like that, uh, which wow. is pretty amazing, you know, and they're always coming up with like, new and interesting ways to also explore the data itself. And so, you know, a lot of people only ever use iNaturalist on the app. And so they never actually have a chance to see, like when you go to the website, that's sure. where you can really see the richness of this data set. And you can really explore what people are finding all over the entire world, which is like, wow, so amazing when you really start looking, you know, especially if there's particular species that you're really interested in, like you can go and see, you know, I always say that like, before I go on a vacation, like, because I'm a marine biologist and because I love nudibranchs, like wherever I'm going, if I'm going someplace coastal, I'll get on iNaturalist and be like, okay, where have people been finding nudibranchs there? And I'll make yeah, sure that yeah, I go there. Yeah. And like, that's where I want to go snorkel or go tide pool or things like that as well. Right, so right, that right. ability, you know, to use it kind of for these fun side things that it's probably, you know, it was never their intention that people are going to use this to plan their vacations, but like I do it, you know? <laughs> I'm sure you're not the only one. Some people no, have their top not. list of restaurants they want to visit. Other places have their top list of where they want to go species spot. Exactly. And so, yeah, I just really, also just think like getting on the website and kind of exploring the data set and what the website has to offer is just like an yeah. entirely different experience than just using the app itself. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So where can people find you online if they have any questions and also get more information about both iNaturalist and the City Nature Challenge? Yeah. So um, it's great to reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Allison Kestrel on Twitter is a great place to get a hold of me. And um, we also have on um, our academy website, we have a site just for our community science programs, which is another great way to get in touch with us. So that's calacademy.org slash community dash science, um, or you can just search for community science on Cal Academy and, and, and find it that way as well. Um, and then the City Nature Challenge, um, we have some information on the Cal Academy website. It also has its own website, citynaturechallenge.org. And then there's iNaturalist.org. So Brilliant. Googling any of those words will probably take you to the right spots, but those are kind of the specific places you can go as well. <laughs> Perfect. And we can look forward to the next City Nature Challenge in April 2022. Yeah, so it's going to be um, kind of the same weekend it was this last one. So the, the last weekend in April going into that first part of May. I think it's like the okay. 29th to May 2nd. I can't okay. remember exactly, but somewhere that very somewhere last like weekend that. of April. Yeah. Brilliant. Very cool. And the very last question that I ask all of my guests who come on the show is what does the Internet of Nature mean to you? I mean, I like to think of it just as like, you know, in the same way we think of the internet as like connecting all of us and, and networking everything together, you know, nature is the same way that like we are all connected and, and everything in nature is connected in the same way. So when we think about information flowing over the internet versus information like flowing in between, you know, what you're seeing outside or hearing outside or experiencing outside as well. Like I really like to think of of building those connections and building those networks and building those communities that we can have them on the internet, we can have them in nature and you can put them together as well. That's brilliant. Well, hopefully people will jump on iNaturalist and, and give that a go. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Thank you so much. That was really fun. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And if you did, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast now and leave us a review. We really appreciate it. We'll be back next week with Indra Denbucker, an inspiring Dutch entrepreneur who co-founded Overstory, which helps tame wildfires with machine learning and satellite imagery. Very cool stuff, so don't miss it. In the meantime, download the iNaturalist app and start honing your wildlife scouting skills so you're ready for next April's BioBlitz. For more information, visit citynaturechallenge.org.
Thank you for listening to the Internet of Nature podcast. This show was produced by Studio Nordgestort. Gestort.